Thank you, thank you very much, thank you. You guys can be seated today. Uh, my name, as Carson said, is Jamin. I'm one of the volunteers here at Banner Church. Um, my parents were the pastors here for about six or seven years. So I grew up as a PK, as a pastor's kid. I think my first day in the church, I was two days year, two years old, two days old, two days old when I first stepped into a building into church. Um, but I, I uh, despite that wonderful foundation of growing up in the church was not always the nicest child. Have you guys ever heard any of the stereotypes about PKs? Uh, they're true. They're absolutely true. And I think that my brother Jensen, if you've met him and I, when we were little kids, we kind of proved that. Um, an example of this, when we were teenagers, when we were about 15, 16 years old, we both over one summer decided that we were gonna go to church camp, or I guess our parents decided, you guys are gonna go to church camp for about a week up in Prescott, Arizona. And so uh, our church didn't really wanna go. We were the only ones in the youth group. And so they sent us up there with three other pastor's kids, all to be in one cabin together. <laughs> that is a dangerous, dangerous combination. Five pastor's kids in one room, all PKs. We did some bad stuff that week, pulled some pranks. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things I think to this day I'm still pretty ashamed of that we did is during the days when we got there at the camp, all day long they had activities and games and you were supposed to go off with your team and, and kind of compete in these different games. It was all fun. But because we were punk teenagers and because we were too cool uh, for church, we said, you know what, we're not gonna go play games. We're gonna get snacks and candy and sit in our cabin uh, and we'll just sit here all day. Well, there was a problem with it, with just chilling in the cabin, and that was that there's a dean that comes around and checks them just about every hour. And so he said, you know what, I have a plan. I would like to say Jensen came up with this plan, but that would be a lie, I came up with the plan. And the plan was this, I'll sit near the window, and we'll just sit there and hang out, eat red vines and Skittles, drink soda, hang out, talk about things that 15, 16 year olds talk about, whatever that is. Kanye and climbing trees. Where do they make Skittles? I don't know. And so we were sitting there and I would sit by the window and I would look out and if I saw the Dean coming or if I heard his steps coming by, the plan was I would immediately break out into how great is our God and everyone would join me. All the PKs, we would all just break out into a worship set because if the Dean heard that and he comes into the room, there's no way he can be mad at us because we're worshiping Jesus. And so we did, we're sitting there, we're si I'm sitting by the window and I'm talking with Jensen and these other guys and talking about how cool we are because we're 16 and I just started driving and <laughs> well, you know, now I'm really gonna get the ladies with my Honda Accord, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so we're sitting there and then I heard the Dean and so I started off, how great is our God. Sing with me, come on guys, how great is our God. And then the Dean, we heard the keys jingling at the door and he opens the door and we're like, Dean, join us. How great is our God. Come on, Dean, sing with me, how great is our God. And we just kept going and just let the Dean join in. And he did, <laughs> he bought the lie 
and he started singing with us. And we were like, Dean, yes. So we finished the song, we come to the end and we just kind of clap a little bit. We're like, oh, that was so good, so good. And he, and he started crying. And the Dean sat there and he goes, he goes you, know, you know, people say bad things about PKs. <laughs> they say a lot of bad things. They say you guys are rebellious. But this, this just, this touched my heart. This touched my heart what you guys are doing here. And we sat there and we nodded and held our hearts and said, yeah, yeah. You know, people like to stereotype us, but I mean, we really do love Jesus. We love the church. And then, well, what can we say? What can we say? And all the while we have our candy and soda hidden under the sheets in the bed there in the dorm and uh, we're sitting there and we got away with it. There, there is, that is the bad and good ending to the story. But it's interesting at that time, I don't think I really understood what it meant uh, to be a part of the church. I had grown up in the church. I had been in it my entire life, but I didn't really understand what it meant, what the church was. And I think that many of us today are still in the same place. There's many of us today that we live our lives just the way that we want to. We live the week the way we want to. And then on Sunday, as soon as eyes turn to us, we walk into church and go, how great is our God. Yes, he is. He is so great. Can you say it again? How great is our God. And we sing it, but, but we, don't, we don't really know what it means to be the church. What is the church? It's a powerful question, and we just got done with Easter, where we were celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ, that time of the year where we, we remember the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for humanity. The introduction of new healing into the world, new creation into the world, where sin and death and pain and oppression, where it's been announced that those days are numbered and healing's coming in. But then the question becomes, what do we do? What now? I recognize the gospel. I see that Jesus has died and he's risen again. So what do we do? What's the point? So we need to think about what is the church? And I wanna give you just a quick definition before we actually go into our text today. Uh, if we could put it up here on the screen. The church uh, in Greek, when Jesus mentions the church, when Paul and Peter talk about the church, they use the word in Greek, ekklesia. Ekklesia is a really interesting word. Ekklesia typically in Greek is used to mean the assembly, the gathering, the collection. Uh, that's the basic definition, but ecclesia has a bit of a deeper meaning to it because it actually comes from two word, root words that mean in Greek to call out from and into. So it is the assembly of people called out from and into something. And we're gonna talk about that today, really what that means. What does it mean to be the church? And into the next few weeks here, we're gonna start a series on the book of Acts. And we're gonna be looking at the history of the early church and what those first founders and disciples did to build this rock of the assembly of people called out from and into. 
And I wanna submit something to you today, and it may sound strange now, but I, I, I promise that this is one of the deepest truths in all of the Christian message that you can possibly grasp. When Christ calls a man, he calls him and bids him come and die. That is the great truth of the church. So if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to get out. Uh, uh, our first verse is gonna be in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 We're gonna be looking at Luke and Acts. So this is the last chapter of Luke that we're gonna look at in the gospels. And then we're gonna look at the first chapter of Acts and be able to kind of bring these together. And the reason I'm doing this is that before we start our series in Acts, we need to understand the context of what is going on here. Luke and Acts are two books of the Bible that are actually written by the same author. They're both written by a man named Luke. He was not a disciple of Jesus. He actually was a companion of Paul in the early days of the ministry. In about 62 AD, he wrote two books. One is a gospel, the Gospel of Luke, telling about the history of Christ in the world, how God entered the world in Jesus Christ, about the life he lived, about the death he suffered, and then about his resurrection. The second book is a companion to that first book, and it tells the history of the early church of the early believers, how Christianity started spreading around the Roman world. Together, these form a history of salvation. And they're written specifically to a man th named Theophilus and more broadly to just the community of the churches that were there, the ecclesia, that were there around the Roman empire to give them a history of the salvation that is at work in their own lives. So that's the lens that we have to look through when we're reading these books together. It is a history of salvation. So if you're in Luke, Luke chapter 24, if you haven't gotten there, get there. This is the Great Commission. At this point in the story, the history of salvation, Jesus has risen from the dead. We celebrated this last week with Easter. He's risen from the dead. He's been teaching his disciples. He's appeared to them. And now he is going to tell them what to do. I've risen from the dead. I've come to life again. I've introduced the plan to save humanity and redeem the world. Now here's what I want you to do about it, disciples. And he says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Can somebody say, stay with the city with me? Yeah. 
If you want to take your Bibles and just flip it over uh, a few books over to Acts chapter 1, I'm going to be looking at verses 3 and 5, very beginning of Acts. So we just read the very end of Luke. That's how it leaves off, Jesus giving the Great Commission. Beginning of Acts is going to start off with just a recap of what Jesus said. A little bit of a recap of what Jesus said to his disciples. So I want to give you both of these. It says in Acts chapter 1, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Amen. Here's the interesting thing about both these verses. The verbiage is different in both. We commonly refer to both of them as the Great Commission that God has given us all as believers, all as disciples, those have, who have been impacted who have recognized the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the great commission to us. And oftentimes we focus, as soon as we read it, we jump to proclaim the resurrection to the nations, to the edges of the world you need to proclaim. But that's not the process that the great commission goes through. It's three steps. Three steps to how the church is to be created. Jesus is telling his disciples, this is how I want you to build the assembly, to build the assembly of those who are called out from and into my promises. And he gives us these steps, if we could put them up here. He gives us these steps. He says, for the creation of the church, the first is the gospel. He says, now you've seen it. You've recognized it. You believe it. This is what we did last week with Easter, where we celebrated God's death and resurrection, the announcement of new life coming into the world. As C.S. Lewis put it, God became man to enable men to become sons of God. That's what we're recognizing in the gospel. But then there's a second step that he gives them before he's gonna send them out into the world, and that is baptism. He says, before you can do anything, you need to be baptized. That's an interesting, interesting prerequisite. You recognize the gospel, you bring it into your heart, and then he says you need to be baptized. And only after that, only after the baptism of the spirit, then you can go out and proclaim. Notice that Jesus at the beginning of his ministry even follows this step. He doesn't even exempt himself. He lives to be 30, 33 years old. He hasn't done anything yet. He's just been a carpenter. And then finally, he brings himself to John the Baptist to the Jordan River, and he allows himself to be submerged into the water and to come up, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and it says, this is my son. And Jesus begins his ministry. And he tells us to do the same. And I think that the reason he tells us is not arbitrary. It's not just an initiation process. It's not just some cultic ceremony. 
there is something very real and very deep and very impactful about taking the position of baptism before you actually proclaim the gospel of resurrection out into the world. Before you begin healing the sick, before you begin giving to the poor, before you become the body of Christ, the ecclesia, the assembly, those called out from and into, you need to learn how to be baptized. And you have to learn it. It's an event, but it goes deeper than that. So I wanna give you just a little bit, now we've kind of gone through there, beginning of Luke into Acts. Jesus is telling us you need to be baptized before you can go out and proclaim. This is how the church is founded. Well, what is baptism? That's a good question. And because I love using Greek, we're gonna look at that again. So if we could put that up here. Baptism translates in Greek to baptizo. Baptizo means to submerge, to wash, to be overcome. Those are the basic terms for baptism. It means to be submerged within something, to be overcome by something. That's what it means. And it starts with John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospels. He starts telling Jews in Israel, you need to be baptized. You need to come into the Jordan River and I need to dunk your head below the water. That's a strange thing. Let me say that again. Uh, hey, can you come over? I just started asking people on the side of the street out here. If I went over to ASU and went to the canals and just asked if people wanted to be dunked in Tempe Town Lake, can you imagine the response I would get? Not a very good one. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. And Jesus is saying, before you can start your ministry, you need to understand what this really is. And you need to do it. And that's powerful. That's powerful. Here's what baptism signifies. I wanna give this to you today. Baptism as a sacrament is participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through imitation. Let me say that one more time. Baptism is participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through imitation imitation. It is that first step where you go down below the water representing the death that Jesus put himself through, that he allowed himself to suffer, where you go down your whole body, your whole self is submerged and overcome. It is put down in the grave. It is killed so that you can be brought back up into new life the new man into resurrection. Paul, the apostle, puts this very well in Romans 6, three through four. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. 
Paul is saying here to new believers when he writes the book of Romans, he's saying, don't you remember what you did when you were baptized? What that meant? What it meant is that the old you, the you that was bitter, the you that was addicted, the you that was in pain, the you that hated, the you that was full of prejudice, that had to die, and that died in the baptism. It died on the cross. You identified with that, and you've been raised to new life. The Spirit of God has given you a transformed life. You are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently. Paul is saying, don't you know, don't you understand what baptism meant? It meant you had to die. That's what this means. It's interesting that in the early church, in the early days of the church, we know this from the early church fathers when, when we read their theology uh, in the churches, the way they did baptism, this is fascinating, is they'd bring people in the church or out to a river fill it with water, and they would dunk the people three times into the water to represent the three days that Jesus was below the grave. Dunk them three times down in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and then bring them back up to new life. Sin is gone. They've laid down their lives. You see, many of us like to live our Christian lives as if death in the cross is the end of an otherwise good Christian life. But the cross meets us right at the beginning, right at the start. What does it mean to actually become a Christian and to join the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of those called out from and into? Well, it means you learn how to die. Some things got to be put to death so that you can have new life, so that you can proclaim new life into the world, enact new life into the world. One of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, put this really perfectly. He said, baptism is a witness to the grace of God and marks the beginning of the human response to his grace. Let me say it one more time. Baptism is a witness to the grace of God, the grace that God has washed over you, that his death, his resurrection has made a way for you. It's a witness to that grace, and it marks the beginning of the human response to his grace. Baptism is not just a sacrament and ceremony that happens at one time in the beginning of your walk with Christ. It is an attitude. It is a new way of living. You need to live a baptized life once you are baptized. What this means is that when you are baptized, it is the end of your old life and the beginning of your new life in Christ. It's the end of selfishness. It's the end of self-interest. It's the end of living for your own desires. And it's the beginning of learning how to love your neighbor and your enemy. It's the beginning of learning how to love God with all your heart, soul, and might. It's the beginning of healing. It's the beginning of reforming a new birth and resurrection. 
that's what it means. And it has to come into your own life. Karl Barth is saying here that the moment of baptism is a witness to the grace, but once you've made the witness to the grace, the human response begins. Now you're empowered with the Holy Spirit. You can learn. The Holy Spirit there is to empower you and guide you to learn how to die daily. How do we die daily? This is put wonderfully in Luke chapter nine. Jesus says in Luke chapter nine, verse 23 through 24, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. See, baptism is inextricably connected with that attitude of taking up your cross daily. Many of us, we've heard that verse before. It's a very common one to hear, but it's a difficult one to embody. It's a difficult one to embody. You need the Holy Spirit to help you embody that one. It's not easy. It requires courage to take up your cross daily. The gospel of Christ, it is hope. It is new life. It is mercy. But let me tell you this today. If you want to join the ecclesia, the assembly of those called out from and into, you got to become called out from the old ways and into the new. And that's not easy. Thank God Jesus already made a way. Amen? You see, the call of Christ to join the church, what does it mean? What does the church mean? It is those of us that have been called out from addiction and into freedom. Some of you in this room are being called out from greed and into charity. You're being call, called out from selfishness and into selflessness. You're being called out from complacency and into compassion, out from hatred and lies and despair and into love, joy, and peace. Jesus is calling you and he's saying, will you die? Do you have the courage? Do you have the courage to take up your cross? Will you answer the call? Do you have the courage to become part of the ecclesia, a part of the church? You see, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite Christian authors, put this very beautifully when he talks about the Christian ethic of love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, it sounds like a wonderful thing. And, and a lot of us like to quote it, but we don't like to live it. And he was combating at a time, he was writing in the early 20th century, and he was combating many different thinkers who were saying, you know, Christianity has failed. Christianity can't give us this new life, and, and he wrote to combat them. He said, <laughs> the Christian ethic has not been tried and found wanting. The Christian ethic 
has been found difficult and left untried. Because the Christian ethic requires death. We love to say, you know, just love everybody. What's, you know, what is it to be a Christian? You know, love God, love people. Love God, love people. That's what I do. We love to say it until it conflicts with our checkbook. Love God, love people. Until our neighbor is somebody that we really don't like that much. Love God, love people. Until they're not an American citizen. Sometimes we have trouble loving God and loving people because we haven't learned how to be baptized daily, how to take up our cross daily, how to die. And we need to learn it. We need to learn how to die so that God can bring new life up in us. It's the only way. It's the only way. We gotta embody in baptism. Through imitation, we embody the gospel. It's brought into us the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are two men from the 20th century, giants of the Christian faith, who the anniversaries of their martyrdom and their death were just this week. One is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. And the other is Martin Luther King Jr., both men died in April, early April, were killed because of the stands they took. They paid the ultimate sacrifice, just as many of the disciples, when we look at Acts, as we kind of make our way through this book, we're gonna see the disciples had to go through a lot of suffering. They really had to know how to die. They had to understand it. But these men, they're, they're magnificent to me in a lot of different ways. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I wanna tell you a little bit about first. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed 73 years ago tomorrow, April 9th, 1945. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and a pastor of a Lutheran church in Germany. And he was there in Germany pastoring when the Nazi regime under Adolf Hitler's leadership took over the Weimar Republic, took over the German government. As soon as Hitler took over, Hitler understood that it would be really advantageous to have the church on his side. And so he pressured the Lutheran church to endorse him and pledge their allegiance to his regime. And they did. Lutheran Church gave in to the pressure, pledged their allegiance to Hitler and what he was doing. Then in the early 1930s, when, when the Jews were being persecuted, the Lutheran Church turned a blind eye, turned the other way so that they could keep their political status in the country. Dietrich Bonhoeffer took a stand and he said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna participate in this. At the detriment of his own career, he started making radio broadcast talks, publishing essays, preaching sermons, where he called out the evil that was going on, cried out for justice. 
Because he did this, he was excommunicated from the Lutheran church, stripped of his pastorship position, had to open up his own church there in Germany to try to teach people what was really the truth of the gospel. In the late 1930s, as things started getting worse, as the war began in 1939, as, as uh, Jews were rounded up into the ghettos and then started disappearing in, in carts, heading off to concentration camps, he joined an underground resistance group to try to help get Jews out of Germany and save them. Saved hundreds, hundreds of Jews from death. Also joined a plot at that time with this underground group to try to assassinate Adolf Hitler so that they could, they could fix Germany and the war and the suffering that was going on all around them. But he was found out. 1943, the Gestapo picked him up off the side of the road and they took him to a concentration camp, the place where he was trying to save so many people from going to. And they put him in a small room for two years with about two dozen other prisoners. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that moment had to make a decision. He had reached the point of suffering. He had reached the point where his own self-interest, everything had been stripped away. And he had to decide, what am I gonna do? And he wrote these powerful words about discipleship, about learning, about this concept. I wanna read it to you. He wrote this, he said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man was, must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. I wanna say that one more time. It is the dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, amen? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to have the, leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man, at his call. On April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was pulled out of his cell, taken into the courtyard of the concentration camp, brought up on the gallows and hung because of the faith that he took a stand for. One day later, the camp was liberated by Russian troops the impact that he has had on generations is insurmountable because he understood what it meant to lay down his life, to take up his cross, to live baptized, to come out from and into. 
That's what the church looks like. That's what the church looks like. If you wanna know, it's not the building, it's not the comfy chairs, it's not three songs in a sermon. The church is that. You can point to it. The other man that we celebrate the anniversary of his death, Martin Luther King Jr., we know his story very well. But he preached a sermon in, in 1967, the year before he was killed, where he recounted some of his early days in the civil rights movement and some of the struggles he encountered. He writes this and he's talking about the days just after he became the spokesperson for the Birmingham marches. And he says this, and I wanna end with, with this right here, this story. He says, they started doing some nasty things. They started making some nasty telephone calls and it came to the point that some days more than 40 telephone calls would come in threatening my life and the life of my children. I never will forget one night very late, the telephone started ringing and I, and I picked it up. On the other end was an ugly voice. That voice said in substance, we are tired of you and your mess now. And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're gonna blow your brains out and blow up your house. I had heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. I turned over and tried to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I was frustrated, bewildered. Then I got up and I went back to the kitchen and started warming some coffee, thinking that coffee would give me a little relief. And then I started thinking about many things. I sat there and thought about my beautiful little daughter who had just been born a month earlier. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile. I studied that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me at any minute. I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted and loyal wife who was over there asleep. She could be taken from me, I could be taken from her. I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget it. Oh yes, I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right, but Lord, I must confess I'm weak now. I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage. It seemed in that moment that I could hear another voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you even unto the end of the world. I tell you, I've seen lightning flash. I've heard thunder roll. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone, never to leave me alone. And I'm going on in, believing in him. Would you all stand to your feet with me today? Just bow your heads and close your eyes.
God has called every single one of us in this room to join the church, to join his movement of healing, the ecclesia. He has called you out from the old, out from the broken, out from the addicted, out from the bitter, and into the new, the healed, the loved, the forgiven. He bids every single one of us to come and die. So I wanna ask you today, are you willing to answer the call? Are you willing to let God transform your life? And if you are, I want you really quick, right now, just to raise your hand softly in your seat. Just raise your hand if you feel like, yes, I have some things I need to be, need to be put to death right now. There's some parts of me that need to die, that need to be raised again. pray with you today if everybody could just say this prayer with me Lord I love you and I need your death so I can share in your resurrection put to death in me all that does not belong teach me how to live with a cross on my back. Amen. The worship team is gonna continue to play and uh, as they do, I wanna invite you, if you wanna experience that new life today, if you want to put some things to death and you need prayer, I wanna invite you to the front so that me and some of the other leaders can pray for you. And if you wanna take that next step of being baptized and living the baptized life, you have never done it before, I encourage you to sign up in the back for baptism next week as we continue this series. So as Jana plays, I want you to just bring your hearts before the Lord.